So as usual, we're going to begin with a moment of silence. So we bring our awareness to be in this space and acknowledge that we are right now in the sacred heart of mystery and that this unnameable mystery seeks to find expression through we are, through who we are and how we live. So, no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. So, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. I had to memorize this in high school, I can't do it now from memory. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness, it was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going to heaven. We were all going directly the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. You know those words, most of you, right? They are from Charles Dickens' book, um, A Tale of Two Cities. I was required to memorize those words in high school. Great first sentences. See if you know them. Call me Ishmael. Moby Dick. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Pride and prejudice, good. A screaming comes across the sky. Gravity's rainbow. Oh, this is one of my favorites. Many years later, as he faced the firing squad, Colonel Aurelino Bonadilla was to remember that distant afternoon when his father took him to discover ice cream. Hundred years of solitude. Who knew that? Back there, somewhere. Yeah, that great book. Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Anna Katrina. Right? Tall story. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. George Orwell, 1984. I am an invisible man. Ralph Ellis, uh, Ellison, invisible man. You can buy a mug that has all the great first lines inscribed on it, so that you can memorize them in the morning if you want to drink from that kind of mug. Huh? They don't. You're supposed to know that or go look them up or 
read the books or whatever. So uh, A Tale of Two Cities was written in 1859, and according to many people in the book business, they can rank it about number 10 as one of the best-selling books of all time. Um, it's a, a, the two cities are London and Paris, and uh, this is set right before the French Revolution, and the story tells the, the story of a French doctor, um, Manette, and his 18-year-long imprisonment in the Bastille, uh, and his release to live in London with his daughter, Lucy, whom he has never met. Right? It's a great story. Set up against the conditions that led to the French Revolution and what's known as the Reign of Terror. And I, it's a, a great book. I was almost tempted to reread re it. It was the best of times. It was the worst of, worst of times. Sounds like us, doesn't it? Yeah. It was the best of times. <clears throat> During the last 20 years or so, fewer people smoke. The gender gap, though nowhere near close, is less than it was 20 years ago. Both unemployment and poverty are not what they were 20 years ago. There are fewer homeless people. Child mortality rate is down. Cancer rates have fallen. Uh, 10 or 11 years ago, I had a quadruple bypass where the doctor did not put me on the heart-lung machine. Um, hip replacement, we have somebody here today who had hip replacement um, recently. It's now an outpatient procedure. You go in, have a hip replacement, you come home. Uh, progress in computer technology is absolutely astounding. The um, smartphone, memory capacity, cloud storage, all of this is cheaper and better than it was 20 years ago. There are fewer HIV infections. We now have treatment for HIV. We have a HIV vaccine. More women are involved in politics. There are fewer illiterate people. COVID vaccines have been produced in record time and on and on and on and on it goes. It's a great time. And it was the worst of times. Social media addiction and how it is exploited for profit is leading to so much social unrest, non-existent 20 years ago. So was the opioid crisis. We have a student loan crisis that is overwhelming many. Climate change is the third pandemic approaching faster than almost anyone wants to acknowledge. Um, if you have not seen Don't Look Up, I highly recommend it. It's a great film on Netflix. Um, climate th change is now referred to by many sociologists and others as the third pandemic that's coming. Um, the second pandemic uh, that already has its foot in the front door is authoritarianism. A work culture has burned so many people out that the pandemic has seen an astounding number of people simply quit their jobs. Traffic congestion is worse almost everywhere. Obesity, obesity rates are increasing, taking toll on medical costs and death. 
Life expectancy has actually gone down in the last 20 years. Income inequality has grown. Top wage earners are earning more and more over three times as fast as the median. In January of this year, inflation hit a 39-year high. Diabetes rates have jumped almost 10%. Overall life satisfaction has fallen uh, almost 10% since 2007. See? 2007, privacy has been traded for a sense of security and safety. Your device that you are carrying with you knows exactly where you are right this moment, keeps up with you all the time. Social media platforms have insinuated themselves into politics, the workplace, and everyday life. Public infrastructure continues to decline. Everybody wants it fixed. Nobody wants to pay for it. In 2010, the word selfie didn't even exist. It was not in our vocabulary. And between 2011 and 2017, 260 people died taking selfies. Robocalls are skyrocketing. Air travel has gotten more and more unpleasant. And of course, political division is in our faces almost everywhere. Hate crimes are up. The lid has come off expressions of racism and on and on and on. It was the worst of times. Now, though this was true in Dickens' time, and though it has been true in many eras of history going back, the stakes are higher in 2022. Our pace of living is more intense. I remember when John Dominic Crossan was teaching uh, from this very uh, stand, his saying in earlier times, of course, his expertise is he's the living expert on the Jesus of history. So he knows all about that particular time in, in history. He said, in earlier times, the way you attacked your enemy or the way you defended yourself was by throwing rocks. You quit when your arm got tired or you ran out of rocks. Now, we have open carry laws that permit people to carry loaded automatic weapons on the street. Recently, on a road trip from Houston to the Hill Country, <clears throat> and I don't remember where this was. It was, I think, on 183, just a little bit west of Austin. We passed at least two huge billboards on the side of the road that said, Stop ahead. Build your own gun. And a picture of a gun that looked very much like an AK-47. You know, the, the reason people build their own guns is that they're more difficult to trace. I think uh, that maybe one of the most amazing things that has not occurred since 1945 is that no one has set off a nuclear device of some kind. That just seems to me to be phenomenal with people being as angry as they are and set on winning. So for the, the last two weeks and today, I wanted to take three weeks to do um, three different reflections 
on a story in the Gospel of John that we have been looking at. We're doing a deep dive into the Gospel of John. And next Sunday, we will move to another healing story, which is also very uh, applicable to our particular situation. What I have said so far is that this story presents Jesus as a boundary crosser and a barrier breaker. If we're called to be the body of Christ in the world, to act like Jesus, this is a lesson for us to develop our capacity and willingness to cross boundaries and, and, and to um, break barriers. The healing story that we will look at today and next week, and there are at least four others in John that will give us this opportunity to gain a, a better understanding of what faith is. And to also, um, and faith is not believing things, but faith is being faithful to a relationship, and, and faith is living with a certain sense of trust. And um, also, we're be being given a better um, opportunity to understand the storyline that produced John and the early Jesus-following community. The storyline that most of us got was that Adam and Eve came into the world. The world was perfect. They sinned. There was this fall from grace, this long period of living in that period of condemnation till Jesus comes. Those who believe in Jesus can go to heaven when they die, and those who don't are out of luck. That was not a storyline that Jesus would recognize, or the early followers in John would recognize as either. Um, I think the storyline, which I call the Jewish Jesus storyline, because it originates in an understanding, Jewish understanding of their relationship to God, starting with Abraham, and Jesus embraced that and took it to another level. God never punishes in this storyline. God is always seeking to call us into this loving, safe embrace. Now, this is metaphorical language, you understand? So my point is that the concepts of original sin, the fall, substitutionary atonement of Jesus' death, these things you read back into the biblical story. You can't read them out of the biblical story. They were not part of the Jewish understanding of God. Um, and since Jesus was a Jew desiring to reform his Jewish religion, I call it that Jewish Jesus storyline. So Jesus was executed somewhere around the year 30, give or take, and more or less 10 to 20 years after his execution, we have the first narrative that is available to us that is produced, and this is the Gospel of Mark. Then about 10 years after that, we have two more narratives that are available to us. These are Matthew and Luke, and they both borrow heavily from Mark to create their, their narratives. They were put in narrative form to inform people who had never met Jesus about his life and stories and deeds. And more importantly, 
these three writings, which look at Jesus through a similar set of lenses, therefore they're called the Synoptic Gospels, they were written to fit the Jewish liturgical worship year. Mark about six months of that liturgical year, and Matthew and Luke expanded it to fit the entire liturgical year. Um, most of us never heard that in church growing up. We didn't know that. These followers of Jesus would take their experiences into synagogue worship, and when it came time to offer some understanding of the Hebrew scriptures, they would tell a Jesus story, and they would continue to insert Jesus into the Jewish liturgical worship, and the more conservative Jews didn't like this, so they began to extrude these Jesus Jewish followers out of synagogue worship. You can read all about this in the book of Acts. It's the first church fight, and it's right there in, in, in the book of Acts. So um, somewhere in the year 90, three, maybe four different authors produce material that eventually was put together in what we call the Gospel of John, okay? When uh, I was much younger, my belief was that <clears throat> some guy named John one day sat down and wrote a biography of Jesus and sent it to Simon and Schuster, and they liked it, and they published it, and that was why we know. Before John was written, about the year 70, um, these people experienced their own 9-11. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. Now, these people were brilliant. They built this structure. This is the second time they had built this structure because the temple had been destroyed once before. But they had not been affected by the Enlightenment. So they did not confuse truth with facts. They didn't have that mindset. They were easy to move into the allegorical, what we would call the allegorical, metaphorical understanding of the gospel. So for them, the destruction of the temple was the worst thing that could happen because their belief was God lived in the temple. And if you destroyed the temple, God had no place to live. It was devastating. So it was about 20 years after this structure was destroyed that we have the Gospel of John emerging from this community. And I want you to keep that in mind because something good, the best of times, came out of the worst of times. The Gospel of John, as I said, is totally unlike the first three Gospels. Their faith had been shaped by the events of their time, by their shared experience with Jesus. So what you have in John is a hopeful, positive, courageous affirmation that there is nothing that can extinguish the light given them by Jesus and passed on to others. John is an invitation 
to step into this kind of understanding of life and living, even in the worst and most hopeless looking of times, there comes this positive message. And my faith is that we can get in that place too. Now, I want to make a confession right up front. Um, my life and thinking have been powerfully affected this last week by all of the shows that have been put on on the various media, uh, particularly on PBS, <clears throat> about the anniversary of January 6th. Several of the programs that I saw on PBS, uh, Frontline, is that it? I sent it to you, if you remember. I think it was Frontline. A couple of others have been very, very jarring to me. I knew that there were disaffected people in the United States, but I had no idea how many or to what depth. One person made a uh, comment that really set me back on my heels. He said, I remember exactly where I was when I got the news that a plane had hit the Twin Towers. Then I saw the second plane hit. For me, January 6th is like that, but worse. Because I don't remember half of America rooting for the planes. Now that may be extreme, but you get the point. It speaks to the division and divisiveness that exist in this country today. So I'm calling this time today, where were we, where are we, and where will we be? Maybe the better third phrase would be, who will we be? I've no easy answers. Um, I've no complete answers, but I do have faith. And that faith is that if the people who produced John could give birth to that in the rubble of their lives, so can we. If we embrace the teachings of Jesus in the way that they did. So first, where are we? Where were we? Do you remember where you were on 9-11? My uh, beautiful bride and I had an office on the sixth floor of an office building on the West Loop at the corner of Bissonette and the West Loop, kind of. My first appointment that Tuesday morning was at 9 o'clock, and uh, so I opened the door and called the person in that I was seeing, and as he walked in, he said, I just heard on the radio that a plane hit one of the Twin Towers. Probably a private plane flown by somebody who didn't know what he was doing. And because I don't listen to the radio during the day, that's the reality that I live with for the rest of Tuesday until we got home that afternoon, late that evening. Boy, did that turn out to be wrong. Osama bin Laden and his minions had, had carefully calculated exactly what would happen when they burn, dump tons of unburned airplane fuel down the center core of those two buildings, which is what those planes did. Weeks later, I saw an interview that someone had recorded with bin Laden sometime before these attacks. And bin Laden was asked by the person interviewing uh, him, um, bin Laden said to the person interviewing him, how would you feel? What would you do 
If for years foreign nations had bombed and killed your citizens, especially your children. Now, <clears throat> here's a piece of irony for you. Just one day before those terrorist attacks on the Twin Towers and the Pentagon, there was a book released just a day before. This book was released by the Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh, who was in California at the time. This is a good book, by the way, Anger, Cooling the Flames, Wisdom for Cooling the Flames. <clears throat> Thich Nhat Hanh flew to New York as soon as possible. Travel was difficult, you might remember. He arrived on September the 21st, and on Tuesday the 25th, he delivered a talk to a standing room only crowd at Riverside Church in New York, which is right by Union Seminary, 119th Street, I believe. And the talk was called Embracing Anger. And the next day after this talk, he sat with a small group at Riverside Church put together by Publishers Week that included, among others, U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Andrew Young. And uh, Tay's talk was recorded, and he said, among other things, Originally, our schedule did not include New York, but I offer a practice that can help relieve people's suffering. In a time like this, everyone must know how to deal with anger, how to recognize it and, uh, and transform it. Now, he's on a 10-day fast to support those suffering from the terrorist attacks. And when asked how he would deal with this ordeal, he outlined a simple but difficult two-part plan. He said, first, we need to create a forum of people that did not include politicians and practice deep listening. Second, have this group meet face-to-face -face with the Taliban and other perceived enemies and ask them, what have we done to make you so angry? And then, just listen. Now, as you might imagine, he was promptly dismissed as being naive and that this would never work. What he said was, <clears throat> my voice is not very popular right now. Someone can kill me like they did Dr. King and Gandhi, but we must wake up to the reality of our situation. Compassion is the only means for our protection. Now, this listening is very difficult, particularly in trying circumstances. Um, one of my um, textbooks that I had in clinical training was uh, written by a man named Carl Rogers, a psychologist who was in New Jersey and then moved to San Diego to get, to get away from a troublesome patient, as a matter of fact. Um, and the, the counseling method that we were offered then, which is back in the 60s, was what was called non-directive counseling or non-directive listening. And that 
gave rise to a caricature among psychiatrists and psychologists and psychotherapists of people who just sit there and said, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and how did that make you feel? Mm-hmm, and how'd you feel about that? Mm-hmm. Not very helpful. And <clears throat> Rogers at the time had a, a thing that eventually was called Rogers' Rule. And that was when you have a conflict with some intimate, you stop. And you cannot speak until you have restated your partner's point of view to that person's satisfaction. It's a great ideal. The problem is, is that when your partner has gotten your goat, you can't Think like that, usually. Listening is very difficult. You get upset, you want to react. So you have to practice. I'm not going to say it. You practice to develop patience and humility, among other things. Patience, non-reacting. Our biases get in the way. Our judgments get in the way all the time. These uh, two Irish laborers were working on a road right outside a house of prostitution in Dublin. And presently, the local Protestant minister comes along, pulls down his hat, and walks into the building, and Pat says to Mike, Did you see that? Uh, what can you expect? He's a Protestant, isn't he? So soon after, a rabbi arrives on the scene. He pulls his collar up and sneaks into the building. And Pat says, what a terrible example for a religious leader to give to his people. And finally, who should pass by but a Catholic priest? He drew his cloak up around his head and slipped into the building. And Pat said to Mike, now, isn't it a terrible thing, Mike, to think one of the girls must have taken ill? <laughs> So listening requires that we be present, that we be grounded, and that we be intentional. And we can't be loving unless we are these things. Which gets me to my next major point, which is um, we need awareness about not only where we were, but also about where we are. Where are we? What's required to be present, grounded, and intentional is a new way of processing life. We have to move from the egocentric to the self-centric perspective. Malcolm Gladwell calls his thinking without thinking. One of the things that showed up again and again in the questions you uh, answered last week or statements you made was that many of you ask how to have a contemplative practice, a meditative practice. Um, I think it's a major failing of the church that we have not taught this. This is one of the reasons I think that we have so many angry, and I mean people angry enough to kill people out there, people who claim they are Christian, who could carry Bibles, crosses, and Christians' flags with them into the Capitol on January the 6th. So our culture, including our churches, 
teaches people how to see everything through the lens of their own private hurts, needs, angers, and memories. And this is way too small a sense to see truthfully, wisely, and deeply. This is why many people do not see things as they are. They see things as they are. Does that make sense? So spiritual practice is widening the lens for an ever and ever bigger and bigger picture. And again, as I said, this takes patience, it takes time, it takes persistence. So we will eventually somehow find a method to teach contemplative practice. There is a centering prayer group that meets here at St. Paul's on Sundays. They're not meeting now online. I mean, they're meeting online. But um, in short, what I'm talking about when I talk about a daily spiritual practice is whatever you do to empty your mind and fill your heart. Richard Rohr says, people's willingness to find God in their own struggle with life and let it change them is their deepest, truest obedience to God's eternal will. Holly Hudley sent me a link this past week to a podcast with a foreign policy expert um, here in our country. Her name is Barbara Walter, not to be confused with Barbara Walters. Um, since hearing this podcast, and I'm going to put a link to this podcast in the summary that goes out. So if you're not signed up for the summary, I think we have forms back there where you can do that. <clears throat> or if you're watching online, if you just send me an email, I'll make sure that you get it. Um, this person, Barbara Walter has a new book out. That's the reason that she's being featured. I've heard her pop up since listening to the podcast like three or four times on various uh, things. She has a new book called How Civil Wars Start. And the task force that she works for for, on, in, for the U.S. government has been interested in and focused on how conflicts erupt in other countries where they have unstable, fragile democracies that then drift into having civil war. That's what they've been studying for decades. And they never thought that there was a need to explore and analyze what's going on in the United States until August of 2017. Know when happened in August of 2017? a demonstration in Charlottesville called Unite the Right. And she said that the people involved in that demonstration have felt so not listened to for so long that their fear is so intense that their protest easily and quickly turned into violence. And if you remember, the shouts of the Charlottesville rally were, you will not replace us. Now, I'm not agreeing with them at all. I'm just saying this is their heartfelt passion. Now, there are a lot of people on the other side of the spectrum who feel like they've been not 
not been listened to either. See if this divide. I just <clears throat> happened to hear someone interviewed on the news the other day complaining about the current hubbub going on about voting rights. And this person said, some people in this country simply don't want some other people in this country to vote. Well, that's not new. That's been going on from the beginning. Women have only been able to vote for a little over 100 years in this country. So where are we? I think a bigger, more important question is, who will we be? No matter where we are, how will we show up? Will we be a community that can produce a life-affirming document like John? Will we be individuals like Viktor Frankl, who can do his writing in the context of a Nazi concentration camp? Could we be like Thich Nhat Hanh? who, though banished from his country almost forever, he's now back in Vietnam in the active business of dying. But before then, he was always smiling, always speaking the truth to power, no matter what. <clears throat> Years ago, some uh, psychological group did a study about the happiest and the most depressed professions on the planet. And um, I'm just going to summarize it here for you very briefly. On the happiest end of the scale were symphony conductors, which makes sense. People start applauding them as soon as they walk out on the stage. They haven't done a thing. They work with their backs to the audience and with a small piece of wood, they conduct 150 people. Amazing. At the other end of the scale were baseball umpires. Which makes sense too. Because they almost, this is picturism, they almost always dress in black. They never hear a positive comment about what they do. Quite the contrary, what they hear is, kill the ump! And frequently they have to be escorted away after a game or they have to hide out for safety. So once there was a writer for Sports Illustrated who did uh, interview some umpires about, how, about their work and how they thought about what they did when they were behind the plate. You know, they, they send umpires to umpire school. And just like they send football coaches, I mean referees to coaches, referee school. And at the end of each interview, the reporter asked the umpire exactly the same question. When you're down behind the plate doing what you do to make a living, how is it that you think about your work? And uh, the first umpire interview said, well, I call the balls balls, and I call the strikes strikes. So the second umpire was interviewed, 
Ask the same question when you're down behind the plate doing what you do to make a living. How is it that you think about your work? And he said, well, uh, I call them like I see them. Third umpire was asked the same question. When you're down behind the plate doing what you're doing to make a living, how is it you think about your work? And he said, they ain't nothing till I call them. <laughs> now, to take that stance is to assume what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. Because God said in the creation myth, I give you power to name what is. Uh, you remember from two weeks ago, how we respond to what is, is the determining factor on how we live with it. We can respond to defensiveness, with anger, or with this as an opportunity. Now our culture says that we're dependent on outward circumstances for our well-being. But our faith says something very, very different. And as we continue on through John, we'll see Jesus teaching how to be known and understood by his understanding of God. And we will see that Jesus teaches clearly that <clears throat> being related to his understanding of God protects us from absolutely nothing. Now keep this in mind when we get to the stories of the crucifixion in John, which are very different from the stories of the crucifixion in Matthew, in, in Mark, Matthew, and Luke. And yet the faith in John is that our relationship to this sacred mystery sustains us in everything. Nothing can happen that can extinguish the light that we are and that we are to be in the world. Which gets us to the question of where will we be or who will we be? This story in John, I, I hope you're reading uh, Spong's book and I hope you're reading John Sanford's book on John. It's just that they're so rich, they're very accessible, they're re very readable. Um, keeping in mind that the story is to present Jesus in a way that broke the bounds of his Jewish community. It gives us an understanding of faith that is so liberating to see what is in a more hopeful, not optimistic. Hope is different from optimism. To see it in such a hopeful way. I don't know if you read the preview that goes out about these talks, but I quoted Spong in, in the one this week. He said, faith is having the courage to walk into, unknown, into the unknown, to confront whatever life brings one's way without having our humanity destroyed in the process. You know how most books begin with what's called epigraphs? You know what an epigraph is? An epigraph is something that's put at the front of the book that usually is a quotation by somebody and it kind of gives you, it sets the tone for what's to come in the rest of the book. Some books have more than one epigraph. And I've got two for this talk that I didn't run at the beginning because I wanted to save them. Um, set your awareness about the journey you're about to undertake. 
But these are the two that have stayed with me all week. The first is this. The greatest good we can do this country is to heal its party divisions and make them one people. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. It could have been said by somebody in the last six months. But it was said by Thomas Jefferson right after signing the Constitution. What we're dealing with is nothing new. The other words come from a Chinese philosopher, and those words are these. When small men begin to cast big shadows, it means the sun is about to set. This looks, whether you like it or not, like something I heard Bill Plotkin say at a conference some years ago about what's playing out in our national conversation. He said, uh, Bill Plotkin is a sociologist who works on a model of human development that's called soul development. And you look him up on the internet, it's just another one of those models about, that help you understand what it means to grow as a human person in the, on the planet. And Plotkin said that the majority of the adult population in this country is arrested at late adolescent development. So what we see going on in Washington is some version of a high school cafeteria food fight. It's risky, it's dangerous, but it's not the behavior of mature people. Now, some of you may remember that one of my pleas or warnings, in addition to having a daily spiritual practice, has been to avoid labels of any kind. They are traps, and particularly the label conservative and liberal. The liberal label traps people in suspicion. Liberals don't want to be part of the dirt of history. On the other hand, conservative label blinds people to seeing the dirt, even their own, especially their own group's dirt. They want to hunker down and call things good that aren't good. The conservative response to what is is usually what we've had is good enough, we've got to return to it. So um, in case nobody told you this, we live in a passing world. Everything arises and falls away. Arises, falls away, everything. There's no such thing as perfection. Bad idea. Okay in math but not okay in spirituality. A choice is being offered in our culture that's not a good one. It's either between unstable correctness, that's the liberal point of view, or stable illusion, that's the conservative point of view. What a choice. Either way, that's false security. There's a third way. And that's in the teaching of Jesus. It's called the way of wisdom. It demands a transformation of consciousness and a mind that goes beyond the dualistic win-lose mentality. 
The way of love is the only path that allows us to deal creatively with the impermanence and insecurity of everything else. Now, I hope you do not hear this as a do-nothing stance. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's a stance that urges us to see what is and then to respond to those that Jesus referred to as the least of these, my brothers and sisters. It's about a truth that seeks to set everybody free. It's the ultimate agreement to participate in the only world there really is, in the community of empowerment, that's the kingdom of God. There are no liberals. There are no conservatives. They're just people. So if you want practical advice out of this, I don't usually give practical advice, but be courageous, be kind, and be hopeful. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step and see you here next week. Thank you. <clears throat>